Welcome back to The Disruptors. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. The design sprint methodology has spread like wildfire, both in the startup community as well as the world of enterprise innovation. My guest today is John Zaratsky, one of the creators of the design sprint methodology and co-author of the Sprint Book and Make Time. And in this episode, we dig into how the design sprint methodology came about, how it's evolved uh, over the years and what John's learned. Along the way, he shares dozens of practical suggestions for how to structure sprints and how to get the most out of them, as well as what to do next. And he's shared some lessons that he's taken from the sprint process and applied in his own life. For anyone who's ever participated in a design sprint or uh, is just curious about how they work, this episode is a must listen. And with that, let's go to John. So, John, thanks for being here. Why don't we um, just start with, uh, you know, what, what you're up to these days? If you, you know, if someone approaches you at a dinner party, how do you uh, describe kind of what you, how you're spending your time? That's a good question because I have been trying to figure out what my my dinner party uh, blurb is for what I do. Because <laughs> yeah. I've uh, I've I've been through a lot of change lately. Um, mm-hmm. I spent almost 15 years working in the tech industry as uh, as a designer. Mm-hmm. I worked at Google for much of that time, but I started out at a startup called FeedBurner that was acquired by Google. Um, but I, my wife and I took about two years off. Uh, we, we left our jobs in San Francisco, and we spent some time living on our sailboat, traveling through Central America. Oh, wow. And uh, as, as part of that transition, I have started to focus more on writing yeah. and speaking and teaching workshops. Um, and that's what I'm focused on now. We we actually just sort of returned from our 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 break, our sabbatical, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Uh, we're living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay, uh, we're both from Wisconsin, so uh, it kind of felt like the right move to come here, where we can slow things down a little bit and buy some uh, buy some control over how we spend our time at a really fundamental level. Um, and that's really what I'm focused on with my work now is helping people make time for what matters to them. And that applies to their work, but that also applies to their personal lives and the, the projects and hobbies and whatever they've got going on at home. That's really cool. And I know that I, and, and uh, I want to, I want to get into some of the, the stuff that you're kind of doing now uh, to help folks kind of at a personal level. I know it came from, or at least the, the Genesis, uh, the common thread was kind of a, a lot of the insights that you picked up that you're now kind of applying at a personal level started kind of in a work context. And, um, you, for folks that, that, that know of you, you're most well known for, for this sort of design sprint methodology is kind of, um, the pioneer, one of the pioneers behind that, that whole kind of concept. Um, for, for people who don't know or aren't familiar with you or aren't familiar with that, that terminology, what, what was the premise behind the design sprints and kind of how did you arrive at that as a concept? Sure. Well, just to kind of define it really quickly, the design sprint is a structured five-day process, really a recipe for innovation and uh, creative group work. It's a way for teams to very quickly test new ideas in kind of a safe environment Mm -hmm. so that they can take big risks, they can try new things, they can see how customers react before they commit. And the the design sprint process came out of the work that I was doing at Google Ventures, which is the VC firm funded by Google, where I worked for six years. I was a design partner. And so my, my role there was to basically be available to the companies that we invested in. After we made an investment, I would kind of go into those companies as a consultant, if you will, 
and help them with whatever they, they were doing, whatever they were trying to do. When I started that work, I had kind of an expert's mindset. I would say that I, I, had, I viewed myself and my work sort of like, hey, I'm good at my job. I know what to do. I'm going to go in and I'm going to tell these guys what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you might imagine, that, that didn't work well for very long. Um, I realized that there was no way that I could possibly have the answers for every different company, stage, industry, team dynamic, whatever it might be. Um, and so the the team and I started looking around for what type of uh, kind of more methodical approaches we could apply to helping companies build new products, reach new customers, and so on. Um, and we uh, we started working with a guy named Jake Knapp. And Jake was a designer at Google. Mm-hmm. And he'd been really interested in in sort of optimizing and tweaking process. And one of the the results of that that optimization was something he called a design sprint, which at the time was was a sort of very nascent approach where he would combine kind of a, a brainstorming workshop with some rapid prototyping with some user research. And and we loved this idea because we we saw it as something that we could take into any company and very quickly help them move from idea or sort of an inkling of an opportunity or something that that they could they could do better and and very quickly move them through the stages of of fleshing out those ideas prototyping them and putting them in front of customers so we brought Jake to Google Ventures in 2012 and we just started cranking away on this process we um by 2017, when I left, we had run more than 150 design sprints wow. with, a t- with, with startups in, in lots of different fields and industries at lots of different stages. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we wrote a book about it. Um, and so we've been able to watch the process spread far beyond the, the companies that we had that immediate contact with. Yeah. So a lot of, uh, a lot of our clients kind of on the consulting side of the business, uh, they they have taken this methodology and they're trying to kind of adapt it to what it is that they're they're sort of doing, usually kind of in the context of an innovation team or something like that. But um, from those, I guess those hundreds of of uh, of um, iterations that you kind of went through, um, I'd love to kind of learn a little bit about some of the things that you kind of learned from that. Um, you know, and the first one would be the. Is there a is there a time or a circumstance where it's a bad idea to do a design sprint, or is it always sort of a, I guess how general purpose is it? Uh, are there are there are there constraints that you would put around the problem maybe that you're trying to solve that would make it more effective or less effective? Anything along those lines? There, there has been a lot of enthusiasm about design sprints in the last couple of years, which obviously makes me happy. Sure. It's very exciting, yeah. but I think that one thing that comes along with that is is kind of this one-size-fits-all, uh, you know, Swiss Army knife mentality about about using design sprints uh, all the time for yeah. everything, um, which I can understand because they're fun and they work and they feel good and they have a lot of um, a lot of the activities that happen in a design sprint are, I think, really significant improvements over kind of the status quo, the mm-hmm. default work behaviors, the business as usual stuff that we do when left to our own devices in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm glad you asked about it because it's not true that the design sprint is, is good all the time in yeah. all situations. Yeah. It's, really, it's really intended for the beginning of things. 
But I mean beginning in the loosest possible way. So it's not just the beginning of a, of a new business. It's not just the beginning of a new product. It's whenever a team is at that point where they're trying to do something new, different, better, mm-hmm. but they don't exactly know what to do. They don't, they don't know what the, the road ahead looks like. They don't know which of their ideas is going to be successful. Mm-hmm. And when teams find themselves in that situation, they, they kind of revert to, to one or, or another extreme. The one extreme is they go into sort of research and analysis mode where yeah. they, they kind of you know, say, well, we can't launch it until it's really ready. We're going to dig deep and you know, we're going to dive into the data and we're going to look at what other companies have done and they spend weeks or months you know, effectively sitting in conference rooms having meetings talking about this stuff. Yeah. The other extreme is where they say, well, we can't know until we launch it, so we've got to get it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some of that I think has been reinforced by the kind of lean startup approach. Uh, MVP and yeah, yeah, build an MVP, get real data, which which I think is um, is a good thing. Sure. And certainly, the design sprint process has kind of built on that. I mean, the lean startup was was one of our big inspirations when we were developing the process. But um, to answer your question, it's really at kind of that that early stage of could be something really big, like we're going to launch a new product this year mm-hmm. um, and we're going to use the design sprint process to help us figure that out. Yeah. It could be something small, like um, we need to increase the conversion rate for a specific segment of customers, but we're not sure exactly how to do it. So we're going to use the sprint process to, to help us figure that out. How, uh, how, if at all, would you change the... Um, do, do the activities or uh, expected outputs or anything about the sprint change depending on that scope? So, you know, like you were saying, the difference between kind of coming up with a, a brand new to the world kind of, you know, product concept versus um, effectively a conversion optimization exercise. Um, is, there, is there a way of, of, of thinking about the sprint itself differently? Uh, or, or would you basically go through the same kind of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday exercises? Um, and uh, I guess what, what would the nuance be there, if any? I would go through the same steps, but each of the steps, each of the activities is really tailored or adapted to the, to the problem that you're trying to solve, yeah. to, the, uh, to the, the project at hand. Uh, it really, a lot of it flows from what happens on the first day. On Monday, the big goal for the team is to make a map of the project. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a step that a lot of people stip, uh, skip. A lot of teams, uh, when they're working in sort of their normal mode, yeah. they they don't take that step back and look at, okay, where are our customers coming from? What do they know? What are they trying to do? Where do they come into contact with us? And then what is that process from there on out to, into whatever we, we, you know, we hope they'll do or whatever we want to help them do? Yeah, how does this fit and, into the context of the life that they're already living effectively? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, it's so illuminating because sometimes it's, you know, it's as simple as um, you know, the customer sees a retweet from a friend who, who just tried your product. And, and sometimes it's, sometimes it's, they're using it every single day and it's the first thing they open when they wake up in the morning. And that's, that's the story. That's the experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And those are wildly different things that, that require wildly different approaches to coming up with ideas, to kind of expressing those ideas, to prototyping, to testing. Um, But when you make that map at the beginning of the design sprint, it helps to answer a lot of those questions that you brought up of, of how do you tailor the process? Mm. And so just to kind of make this a little bit more 
concrete. You know, if you were uh, doing sort of a you know, conversion optimization exercise, yeah. your map, the process that you are sketching and prototyping and testing with customers might begin with, um, you know, a marketing email uh, that a customer clicks through and uh, lands on a, you know, a page that's sort of describing the product or the service. Um, and you're kind of seeing how they react to that information, to the pricing, et cetera. Um, and kind of very, you know, very uh, sort of ticky tacky kind of like stepping through yeah. those details. Whereas if it's a totally new product, um, you might, uh, y- you might simulate some type of marketing that's much less targeted, mm-hmm. uh, something that somebody might see, or even an inbound, you know, a sales call, a cold email, something like that, and have that customer reacting to sort of a, a more of a general um, kind of marketing value proposition type uh, website or other piece of, of marketing, um, just to sort of evaluate not physically what they're going to do. Are they going to click the button? But like, what do they think? And does this thing solve a problem that they have? Got it. Yeah, interesting. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the sprint is obviously meant to be done kind of in the context of a team. Uh, is there sort of an ideal um, sort of team constellation uh, of folks that you like to have at the table, ideally, um, to, to execute on something like this well? This is something that we experimented with a lot in the early days of running design sprints. Mm. And what we what we found uh, worked the best was when it was the real team. <laughs> that's kind of our like that's sort of our, our um, you know way to encapsulate um, all these decisions about who to include. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think there's a temptation oftentimes for companies to have an innovation team to have a you know it's a special creative team that goes and does the special creative process. Yeah. Um, but, but ultimately for, for the ideas that come out of a sprint to be successful, they need to be embraced and they need to, to be generated by and owned by the, the real team who's going to be responsible for executing on them. Uh-huh. Um, plus those people have, have a kind of knowledge or intuition about what works and what doesn't work that that's that's invaluable. It's really hard to extract that knowledge that they have out of their brains to parse it out. Yeah. Um, all that intuition they've built up over the the months or the years or the decades that they've been doing this work. Um, and so, so kind of our our catchphrase is is it should be the real team working together. And so that you know, as you might imagine, that depends a lot on the organization, yeah. the the field. Um, you know, we've we've done sprints with robotics companies where it's literally robotics engineers uh, plus uh, marketing and business development people mm. plus the CEO of the company in the room. Yeah. We've done uh, sort of marketing, customer onboarding sprints um, with you know, B2B, you know, large enterprise uh, companies where the team is, is a bunch of kind of marketing and UX designers, marketing people, you know, maybe a product manager or, or a director of marketing. Mm. Um, and so that you know, the makeup of that team l- looks much different. But it really, it depends on what you're doing. As long as it, as long as that team matches pretty closely to the real team who's going to be doing the work when the sprint is over. Along those same lines, wh- where where do you feel uh, the role should be, if any, for um, you know, like executive leadership in terms of you know, um, it seems like on the one hand, getting their buy-in. Uh, would would theoretically increase if they're if they're participating in this process. On the other hand, it seems like you could 
you could suffer from a lot of the things that people talk about around like loud, loudest person in the room syndrome or people not, you know, people being more afraid to kind of share their ideas or whatever. Generally speaking, what's, what's your position on, on involving those folks? I mean, I guess they're not a part of the, they're not, they're in a, in a lot of cases, they're not part of that execution team um, that would be ultimately responsible for bringing the thing to market. Um, but obviously they have, they probably have pretty strong opinions about it. So how, how do you think about that? <laughs> yeah. Generally speaking, we want leadership to be in the sprint. Um, there's an important role in the sprint that we call the decider, mm -hmm. which is the, the decision maker, the person who is, um, you know, not, not necessarily at the highest, highest level, but the person who is for all intents and purposes responsible for making the decisions okay. for that project. Yeah. And we want that person to be in the sprint if possible. There are absolutely group dynamics that um, can be can be harmful, like you said, um, you know, sort of the, the loudest person in the room. Um, there's an implied power relationship when you have leadership in the room yeah. where it might cause other people to be a little bit quieter um, or to not be as, as active as they might otherwise be. Yeah. And then you've got maybe some other people who want to show off a little bit or want to like, you know, kind of, uh, you know, um, fluff up the, the, the tail feathers a little bit to try to stand out in front of the boss. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely an issue, although I think a lot of the a lot of the exercises that are part of the design sprint are meant to counteract those forces. When we were developing the process, it was for startups initially. And in startups, it's essential to have leadership because the leadership is, you know, in some cases, that's a quarter of the team. Yeah, that's right. a, a, like if you don't have the leadership, absolutely nothing's going to happen. Yeah. Um, yet. Interestingly enough, even in those really small teams, even if it's a 12-person startup and there's you know, what you might call two executives or three executives, there's those dynamics, those power dynamics and those, those kind of – those tricky relationships still exist even when the team is small. So, so we built in a lot of kind of um, you know, tricks and sort of uh, you know, catches for some of those dynamics that might – otherwise happen. The whole idea, for example, of um, of sketching on Tuesday, which is how we we capture ideas yeah. in a sprint, yeah. is meant to get away from that environment where people are expected to sort of shout out loud, you know, kind of brainstorm ideas in that traditional sense. Mm -hmm. um, on Wednesday, the decision-making exercises where we narrow down from all the ideas that were sketched to the, the, the couple of ideas that we want to put into our prototype. That's a, a structured decision-making process that was informed by a lot of behavioral science, by a lot of traditions that exist in the design world mm -hmm. um, that, that sort of relies on uh, voting and, and pre-committal and structured uh, discussions so that you don't just have uh, one person running roughshod over the rest of the team. Yeah. So um, – sort of a long answer to your question, but in general, we do want the, the, the leaders to be there. Um, and we think that the process helps to prevent against some of the the unhelpful dynamics that might other, otherwise take place. That's interesting. You know, one of the things we, we, we've run into on the, on, on when trying to execute on these for, for clients or with clients is uh, the, the surprisingly, the biggest pushback was on the design side where, um, there were concern. They were used to maybe kind of being culturally sort of you go in your you go in your you know your hole and then you emerge with this <laughs> finished product and it's, it's yeah. magical and um, 
fears around like sketching, you know, doing collaborative kind of sketching exercises and, and having it all kind of coalesce into like a Frankenstein where you're borrowing <laughs> ideas from this and this and this. And as if that was sort of this horrible thing, is that, is yeah. that, is, is that something you've run into? Um, and if so, you know, any, any strategies for kind of how to kind of prepare, um, team members like that to no, this is going to be good for you that you'll, you'll, you'll actually yeah. get a lot of value out of this. We've run into that quite a bit and it does sometimes come from designers. Mm -hmm. It does sometimes come from engineers. Um, it comes from, I think people who are accustomed to working on their own mm -hmm. in relative isolation mm -hmm. with lots of time to think and develop ideas, which yeah. I don't get me wrong. That is incredibly important and valuable. And I think that's, um, you know, when it comes to sort of the, the, the personal time management stuff that may, maybe we'll touch on, I think one of the, the most important things that people can do is they can be very intentional about their time and give themselves uninterrupted time for the kinds of work that that require that focus, that require that ability to spend quality time. Mm. Um, so I don't want to discount that. But but yeah, it's definitely um, – it definitely happens in a sprint. Uh, so so I'm my background is as a designer. Yeah. I'm you know uh, these days I consider myself more of a writer, but but predominantly you know for most of my career I've been a designer, and so I'm I'm no stranger to that model of like leave us alone, <laughs> let the designers do the design yeah. thing, and we'll show you when we're ready. Sure. And so the fact that like the design sprint is uncomfortable for designers in my mind is like. It's good. Like I kind of want everybody to be like a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit pissed off yeah. about the process yeah. <laughs> uh, because I think that's really healthy. Yeah. Um, the second part of your question, I think, was about how to mitigate um, some of that, I guess. How to counteract that. Yeah. yeah. A lot of that really falls on the facilitator, okay. um, both during the sprint, but also before the sprint when you're setting expectations for how the sprint is going to go. Um, there's a couple strategies that I use as a facilitator. One is to remind people that we're that we're only making decisions for the test on Friday. So the design sprint ends with a customer test where you take that prototype that you built and you put it in front of real customers. Mm -hmm. And and this is not a this is not an exaggeration or or a, a white lie. This is the truth is that the things we're doing during the week of the sprint are only for the test. We're not saying that this is what we're going to do yeah. forever. We're not making – this isn't a binding decision that we have to live with. Yeah. Um, this is just to put something in the test so that we can learn, so that we can answer the questions. And that helps to reframe a lot of these discussions. People realize that they don't need to, to spend – the hours and hours, you know, crafting the visual style or getting things perfectly aligned or, you know, making sure the data is absolutely perfect because they know that that's not the point of the exercise. The point of the exercise is to build a prototype that they can test. Yeah. The other approach that I take as a facilitator is a little bit more philosophical, but it's, it's helpful sometimes, which is to talk about kind of the purpose of design. And design is not something that is only done by designers, um, it's really the process of figuring out what you're going to do. Um, the The team at Basecamp has has a great way of putting it. They've got a one of their blog posts, um, and it talks about this difference between figuring it out and making it happen. And uh, at least I think those are the, the exact words. Um, and the design phase of any project is the figuring it out. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of work that needs to happen 
in the the sort of the second half, which is making it happen. It's the execution. It's the production. Yeah. And a lot of the decisions that people spend time on in the design phase, in my opinion, are actually production questions. So, so the nuances of of you know structure and layout and um, and the copywriting and a lot of technical considerations um, are things that you really need to figure out in that production phase. Mm-hmm. And designers, just as designers are not the only people who do design, um, designers also have a big role in the production phase. There's a lot of you know uh, sort of visual um, you know visual and interaction work that needs to happen in that phase. Yeah. And so I think sometimes talking about that difference and saying you know there, there's there's design and there's production. Right now we're in the design phase, and so we're not trying to figure out all the details. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do, and then later we can make it happen. We can get into the nitty gritty. Got it. Interesting. What other, um, you you mentioned the kind of the role of the facilitator, which, you know, um, uh, is probably a new kind of concept in a team dynamic kind of situation, um, assuming that the facilitator is coming from inside of an organization. Um, are there any, are there any other sort of, uh, either characteristics that make a good facilitator or, um, uh, suggestions for how to make sure that they do, you know, that they, 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 uh, they make sure that the sprint goes as well as possible. Yeah, the, the it's interesting you said that the facilitator was kind of a uh, a new or unfamiliar role, um, which I mean I I completely agree with that matches my my observations as well. But it's kind of crazy if you think about it yeah. because anytime you have more than a few people in a room, that meeting or that workshop or that session, whatever it is, represents a huge amount of of resources. It represents a huge amount of time, which translates into money for the company. Hmm. And, and so it's like, if you want to get the most out of that time, you should probably have somebody there who's thinking about how those people are using their time. Um, but, but way too many meetings are just the people, the participants sitting in the room. Um, you know, they're like an orchestra without a conductor. Um, and and everybody knows that you need a conductor to get the best out of your musicians, even if they're world-class musicians, even if they're virtuosos, you need the conductor. And so that's really the role of the facilitator. Um, that person can take a lot of different shapes. That person needs to be comfortable, um, in front of a room, but they don't need to be super extroverted. Um, I don't. I consider myself an introvert, but um, but uh, but you know, I've done a lot of sprint facilitation, yeah. and and I think I'm good at it. They need to be uh, comfortable synthesizing information on the fly because a big part of the role for the facilitator is listening to what people are saying and understanding it and internalizing it, and either writing it down on the whiteboard or using it to kind of move the discussion forward, yeah. to, to maybe feed it back to the team in a useful way. So somebody who is, uh, you know, is comfortable thinking in that way. Yeah. You mentioned that you know, the facilitator coming from inside the company mm-hmm. versus outside the company, and, and there, are, there are pros and cons to each of those. We have found that the best facilitators are from within the company, yeah. but maybe not squarely like in the weeds on that particular project. Hmm. And so this is kind of an exception to the the real team thing. Yeah. Um, it, there's, a, there's something, there's a bit of, um, I think, confidence and permission that comes when you are a bit of an outsider. Yeah. And we saw this a lot when we were running design sprints 
um, at Google Ventures because you know we were investors and so our incentives were perfectly aligned yeah. and we knew a lot about the business and we knew the team, but we weren't on the team. We weren't really on the ground. And that was a, that was a really nice, it was kind of a sweet spot. You still have a little bit of beginner's mind. You're able to kind of ask dumb questions. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you're not perceived as having a, a horse in the race. Yeah. You know, you're not perceived as like, oh, well, you know, John, he always wants to do it this way. So, you know, of course he's going to say <laughs> um, you, you you don't have as much of a reputation, I guess, uh, for, for better or worse. Yeah. And so um, I, a lot of teams have found success like bringing a person who's maybe from like an adjacent team or maybe um, somebody who's in a, you know, a, a slightly different role and, and bringing them into the team and, and putting them in that facilitator spot. Yeah. Interesting. Um, in terms of, in terms of kind of, you know, prep kind of leading up to it and making sure that it, that it goes as smoothly as possible. I know you mentioned that, you know, a lot of times people get stuck on sort of data paralysis or they feel like they just need to kind of get more inputs in. Um, and it sounds like you don't, you know, that, 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 that can sometimes be, uh, not the ideal use of time. On the other hand, you've, you know, there's whole disciplines around field research and, you know, ethnography and all those sorts of things. Well, what, at least for the purposes of a sprint, what do you feel like are, uh, what represents good data to kind of have to prepare the team with kind of coming into it? What would be an example? Are, are there other inputs that are maybe are, are a waste of time? Like, how do you think about kind of data gathering leading up to a sprint? When we first started doing sprints, we, we rarely asked the team to do any special research okay. ahead of time. Um, and, and I think that you can see, if you read the book, if you do the process, you can, you can kind of see that yeah. because a lot of the activities on the first day are meant to try to extract the information that the team has in their heads mm -hmm. and bring that out and get it onto the whiteboards and get it into sort of um, physical form so that everybody can benefit from it. Yeah. And you know, I think especially in a startup environment, it's often the case where the team is deeply steeped in the information about their customers and their market and their product and so on. Yeah. Um, as a general rule of thumb, the larger the organization, the more prep work you need to do. And a lot of that prep work, honestly, is on uh, setting expectations and sort of, uh, you know, getting buy-in ahead of time, yeah. um, helping to uh, address people's concerns, uh, their objections about the process and so on. Um, but in terms of the, the research and data, you know, I think um, what I like to do is I, I like to look at the activities that we're going to do, particularly on the first day, and, and talk with the team or talk with sort of the, the project lead and try to just make a, a quick gut call on like, are we going to be able to do the activities on Monday? Are we going to be able to do a good job? Hmm. Like, for example, the, the the main point of Monday is to make this map of the of the project yeah. and to identify a target, which is the sort of the most important moment on that map where you want to focus your efforts. So it could be the moment when that customer lands on the marketing page for the first time. It could be the moment when they realize that you have a uh, that you redesigned your app or that there's a new feature or when they walk into your business for the very first time. It's kind of that critical moment of truth. Yeah. Um, and so so you kind of have to assess, like, are we going to be able to to make the map in a way that is is credible and it's deep enough and it 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 captures enough of the true understanding of what goes on with the customers? Um, another example is, um, you know, on 
on Tuesday during sketching, you know, are people going to be able to sketch ideas that are good, that have a, a shot at uh, actually solving this problem or actually helping us reach this goal? Yeah. And and if they don't, because maybe the people on the team don't have frequent exposure to what customers are saying, to the the, the feedback from the customers, their experiences, they they don't know about the kind of the big picture data of where people are getting stuck or where people are spending time in the product. Um, that can really hold people back. And so I kind of like to just go through and figure out, um, are we going to be able to do a good job with these activities? And if not, what data do we need to bring in? And so when we do need to bring data in, that often looks like uh, asking somebody who's either in the team, going to be in the sprint, or somebody who's going to come in on Monday afternoon and the ask the experts uh, portion of the day, yeah. asking them to maybe prepare just a couple of slides or maybe not even slides. Maybe you say, hey, I know that you know a lot about um, you know, what our most dedicated customers do and how they behave. Would you mind spending 10 minutes telling the rest of the team about that on Monday? Got it. Um, so just kind of seeding the ground uh, a little bit so that you know that the time that you're spending together, because it is a huge investment of time, sure. knowing that that time is going to be well spent. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. Um, in terms of the, on, on the prototyping side, a couple of questions there, because I mean, that's obviously, that's a, that's, that's, that's a, one of kind of the major deliverables. Uh, I guess one, what, do, are there, is there a level of fidelity that the prototype needs to have to get, you know, good, relevant feedback kind of below which, you know, like if you're, uh, if, if it's too crude, uh, you know, you, it, it maybe compromises some of the, the data that you collect. Um, I don't know if that's true, but I'm, 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 if, if there is a kind of a definition of kind sure. of a minimum threshold, what would that be? And then the second question would be, um, when you're dealing with a sprint, for something that isn't necessarily going to be a, um, a piece of software. Uh, what, what sorts of deliverables have you kind of seen people create for something that maybe is a little bit more intangible or, um, or it's just kind of a non, a non standard sort of technical deliverable as kind of the final product of it. Yeah. So th this is something that we experimented with a lot. Um, you know, what kind of prototypes work best for testing with customers? Um, and and you're right that there is sort of a low level of fidelity that that doesn't work well. It's not effective. Mm. And, and what we have seen is that people, and when I say people, I mean customers that you're, you're testing with, customers that you're sort of having a conversation with and showing them a prototype. There's this really interesting mode switch where when they see something that looks fake or unfinished, like it's a sketch or it's a paper prototype or it's something that's clearly not a real thing, yeah. they kind of go into this like feedback mode and and you can almost see it or you can almost listen to it. They sort of sit back and they and they say, well, I don't know if, you know, I don't know if people would like this yeah. or, or, you know, well, maybe it might be a little expensive for some people. And, and, and the fact that they're talking about other people um, is kind of, uh, kind of a giveaway. Um, when they start trying to tell you what they think instead of just reacting mm -hmm. in real time, um, that's sort of the, the the indication that they're in feedback mode. And we see that a lot with with prototypes that are not uh, high quality enough or not high fidelity enough. Yeah. But we also see it with with uh, tests that are not well run. You know, where the the interviewer is asking leading questions. 
Um, maybe they're they're assuming too much. They're not giving the customer enough time to talk. Um, so so that's definitely something to look out for. We've also been in situations where we have just spent way too much time on the prototype, making it way too perfect. And there's definitely a line where you cross where it's diminishing returns in terms of what you're going to learn in that test on Friday. Yeah. Um, so the way that we look at it is that we want it to be just real enough that people believe it's real. So we want it to be a realistic facade of the thing you're testing, mm-hmm. of the product, of the service. It doesn't need to be complete. And this is a really this is a really critical bit. It does not need to be functional. Yeah. And so um, there might be some some Wizard of Oz style, you know, kind of controlling things from behind the curtains. Um, it might be something that appears to have artificial intelligence, but it's actually just human <laughs> intelligence. Yeah. Um, it might be, you know, in the case of a, a a robotic sprint that we did, it's you know the robot is actually instead of being autonomous, it's being driven by an engineer with a PlayStation remote um, from literally around the corner. Huh. Um, so basically, what you're shooting for is something that that is believably real, yeah. so that when customers see it, they react. They say, "Oh, well, interesting," or you know, they're they're kind of there with you in that moment, as opposed to trying to sound smart and and, <laughs> and give you feedback about what they think you should do. Sure. And uh, has the has the um, has the standard or the bar kind of gone up over the last you know eight years or so since you've been kind of doing this in terms of you know you see examples of e- even products that are that were in production. So like the the first versions of Twitter you know, versus what they are now, um, relative to kind of products that you might see launching these days, the the degree of polish that is on them, um, seems to generally be a lot higher. Uh, has that in in, in terms, in terms of being able to kind of create that level of believability, has that, have you seen that kind of manifest itself in these, in these prototypes as well, where like what, what constitutes believable, um, is uh, more polished than maybe it would have been when when you were starting to facilitate these these sprints. That's a really interesting question, and I think you're right. Um, I had not thought about that, but I think that the, I think that in general the level of polish in honestly not just technology products but in all kinds of products has sort of gone up. I mean, yeah. the stuff you can go and buy at Target for for ten dollars <laughs> yeah. um, is is fancy. Sure, you know, it's sure. really nice looking. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe the reason that I didn't notice that is that the tools for prototyping have also come a long way. Yeah. So it is it is very easy, particularly with software and with, with digital products and services and marketing, mm-hmm. it is very easy to make things that are very polished, very high quality, very believable. Yeah. Um, you know, th- with tools like Squarespace, mm-hmm. People can put together a website. It's you know it's a real website for purposes of the sprint. It's a prototype, but yeah. um, but but you know just thinking about you know not, five years ago or, or eight years ago or you know certainly if you look further back than that, um, it's it's like you know it's an exponential improvement totally. in the ease with which you can create things that look really high quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you also asked about the. Um, you know, sort of how do you prototype things that are not yeah. tech products or not software, sure. yeah. I guess. Yeah. And um, that is, as you, as you might imagine, that's one of the most common questions. Mm. Um, and, and I really have two answers for it. The first answer is that we have found, we've been amazed, to be honest with you, 
by the resourcefulness with which teams can prototype in their field. Mm -hmm. You know, if if I had to set out and like prototype a robot, I would be at a loss because I'm not a robotics expert. I'm not a robot engineer or robot designer. Yeah. But when we work with a team who's developing robots, of course, they have like all these shortcuts and tricks and all these tools and all these things that I don't know about to prototype a robot. Um, same goes with with healthcare. You know, it, it, the idea to me of of delivering kind of a fake, uh, you know, diagnostic report from some sort of genetic test. Mm -hmm. And we've done a lot of that kind of work. A lot of those design sprints um, is, is so daunting to me because I know that if I get even one piece of data wrong yeah. in that fake report, yeah. it's going to instantly, um, you know, throw that that physician, that doctor who we're testing with, it's going to throw them off the scent because they're going to say, hey, yeah. this, is, this is fake. You know, this yeah. isn't real. Yeah. Um, and but but when you work with a healthcare team, they're able to to fake that data in a very convincing, very realistic way. And so, so you know, the the first part of that answer is like to not worry about it a ton because the people who are steeped in that field, the people who are working in that stuff day in and day out, often with with just kind of a gentle nudge and sort of a mindset shift yeah. away from perfection, away from from production into prototyping can usually do it. They can usually figure it out. Got it. The second part of the answer though is that um, there's a trick that we use a lot, which is uh, to um, prototype the marketing for something instead of the thing itself. And this is especially useful when you're working on a totally new product or a totally new company. Yeah. But it's, it, it's also really, really helpful when you're thinking of adding a new feature or you're trying to reach a new kind of customer. Um, in any category, prototyping the marketing for something is way easier and way <laughs> faster than prototyping the thing itself. And a lot of times, it actually gets you better data in the test. It gets you the answers you want because people aren't you know, struggling with the, the robot trying to figure out how to use it. They're telling you whether they are going to buy the robot for their hotel. Yeah. You know, it's it's it kind of cuts to the the heart of what you're trying to get at in many cases. Sure. Probably the the craziest example of this was a sprint that we did with this um, this company called Orbital Insight that acquires uh, satellite imagery and other data and then analyzes it, kind of crunches the the numbers, crunches the data, and spits out really valuable insights. Uh, they're probably most well-known for being able to count the number of cars in the parking lot of a big box store or some other you know, establishment, yeah. which is a really useful signal to an investor, say, who's wondering whether, you know, whether things are going well at Home Depot or not going so well. Yeah. Um, and they, after the first couple of years that they were in business, they were effectively kind of a, a consulting, you know, custom one-off sort of software shop where they would they would talk to a hedge fund manager who said, "Look, we really want to figure out, you know, we really want to have some some insight into what's going on in in retail. Can you help us?" And they say, "Yeah, I think we can. We have an idea for that." And they put something custom together. But they had um, they had this idea to create a a subscription bundle. So it would be a, a you know very high price point, a, a service that investors um, or, or even governments could sort of tap into and get access to all these different data feeds um, and, and new ones as they became available. But to build that thing was going to be a multi-year effort. Yeah. And so what we did with them in the sprint was we actually, our prototype was a sales deck. 
Um, they already had business development people who were going and having these conversations. And so what they would do is as they were scheduling calls and going in for meetings, they would take this new sales deck with them. And now instead of just having kind of a um, an abstract conversation about, hey, we're thinking of building this thing, would you be interested? They were putting in front of their customers a very real, very convincing looking piece of marketing that they that they could get reactions to. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah, that's something that I, I you know, in a prior life we we used to do not without even really thinking about it. It was, it, I mean, I guess it was an extension of customer development, but it was, you know, before we do the work of kind of building this whole thing, let's let's put the deck together first and uh, and see if it kind of resonates with folks. So yeah, that's that's really cool. Yeah, it's similar to the um, you know the sort of famous uh, or maybe maybe it's become infamous. I'm not sure uh, the the Amazon example of like writing the, the, press, the press release. release first, yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is sort of a it's that's a bit of a. I think there are some problems with that approach, mm-hmm. um, but but it's kind of that similar idea where it's like, you know, it's like what what outcome do we want to result from from all this work that we're doing? Yeah. Um, what do we want people to say about it? What do we want to be able to say about what, it? What, uh, just, just out of curiosity, just because the press release things come up a couple of times um, in the past, uh, when, what are some of the limitations that you see with that? I think that the biggest limitation with the idea of starting with a press release is that it's, I think that it's too one. It's too one sided. Mm. You know, it's it's what you want to say, and I think press releases are also sort of famously um, unreadable and undigestible. The, the customers don't uh, they don't they don't they read don't press, read press releases, releases yeah. to see who, to see what you're up to to see what you're doing. Yeah. Um, the reporters are are the customer for a press release. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, editors are, um, and so if you're trying to test whether you're going to get press, yeah. then maybe that's a good prototype. Yeah. Um, but I would much rather, if I was going to do an exercise like that, um, I would much rather be writing the sort of the testimonials that our customers are, you know, that they have. I'd rather, you know, sort of oh, that's a cool anticipate yeah. what we want our customers to say about the experience, um, how their life has changed before and after. Or, or even you know, if you want to stay in sort of the the, the press media yeah. world, um, don't write the press release. Write the story that you want to see. Like write the press coverage that you want to see for for your product or for your company, and work backward yeah. from there. Um, so those are those are some of my thoughts. That's a cool idea. Um, so once once someone's done a sprint, I guess again two two separate questions. One. Um, how do you handle the scenario where they, they get feedback um, on day five and the feedback is bad? Um, and you know, <laughs> what do you what do you what do you do there? Both both in terms of you know execution wise, but also, and I would imagine especially like in the context of um, like an enterprise context where, like you said, running these things is kind of expensive in terms of carving out resources and time, and you do a lot of groundwork to try to set expectations. But when the when that sort of scenario happens. Um, how do you keep enthusiasm, enthusiasm levels high <laughs> to say, "Hey, let's yeah. you know maybe we try, this wasn't a uh, this wasn't a failure just because the feedback was was right. wasn't great." How do you handle that? Yeah, um, well, like you said, a lot of it does have to have to do with setting expectations. Yeah. Um, so, being very clear about the purpose of the sprint, um, which is to learn. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really to figure out if you're if you're on the right track, and if you're not on the right track, 
it's great to find that out in five days yeah. instead of five weeks or five months or five years. Yeah. Um, and that framing, um, that framing helps a lot. I've, I've actually, um, one of the themes through all the sprints that I've done um, is that I'm I'm always pleasantly surprised by how receptive the teams are to what you might call negative, you know, negative results, yeah. negative test results, negative feedback, yeah. critical um, sort of you know re- re- responses from customers that are not in line with their most optimistic expectations. Sure. Um, people are usually um, they're usually really glad that they know that now. Um, they're glad that that we've shown a light on those blind spots. Mm-hmm. They're glad that they dodged that bullet. Mm-hmm. Um, there must be some other metaphors. <laughs> I can use. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that has um, consistently sort of um, surprised me. I would say that, you know, when it comes to that question of like, what do you do next? Mm-hmm. It's, it's time for some soul searching. Uh, if, if a five day sprint and one round of customer testing uh, is so demoralizing <laughs> that you don't want to continue. Yeah. What like what's wrong? What's going on? Right. Like d- deep down, d- are you, do you not think this is the right approach? Yeah. Um, it, there could be there could be cultural issues. There could be um, you know there could be sort of opinions or views on this approach that maybe haven't been shared. Yeah. Um, and and having those having customers say those things instead of team members is, is, you know, sort of provides them ground cover, you know, saying, hey, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but but the customers clearly did not react in the way that we hoped they would. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's usually, you know, when we do a sprint, we we wrap up on Friday afternoon in, in almost all cases. Yeah. And what we usually do is we schedule a check-in call on Monday morning or Tuesday morning or something like that the next week, mm-hmm. um, particularly when the results were a little challenging, a little frustrating because it gives people some time to just kind of sleep on it, think about it over the weekend, do a little soul searching and say, all right, we, we, you know, we kind of, we got pushed back a little bit here. Do we want to keep charging ahead or do we want to sort of deflect and go in a different direction? Yeah. Got it. And then on the other side of it, when it goes, I guess this is, this is probably more of an issue on the, you know, on the enterprise side, but you know, we've, we've, had conversations with folks and in, in innovation teams where, you know, someone gets brought in, they're new to the role, they want to kind of create some activity, they start doing some design sprints and things like that. Uh, and they, they run into difficulty around, okay, even the feedback was great. Like we had a prototype, feedback was good, uh, but then they get sort of stuck. Um, and they have these, you know, these concepts that are sort of building up in a sort of a backlog and they have a lot of difficulty in terms of, you know, sort of breaking up that log jam and moving um, you know, potentially kind of winning ideas kind of through that next phase. I don't know to what degree, I know the majority, a lot of the, a lot of the sprints that you facilitated or otherwise kind of were involved with were on the startup side, but have, have you, have you run into that at all? And if so, any, any sort of strategies to kind of help them kind of move, move that thing to the next step? We've run into that a bunch in startups also. Um, it's, it's not a, you know, it's, that's, that problem is certainly not, uh, not foreign to startups, mm-hmm. um, but the really cool thing has been since the book came out in 2016, we've we've heard stories from hundreds of other teams at all kinds of companies and organizations, mm-hmm. and so um, so yeah, this is something that that a lot of people struggle with, and and usually 
when there is a reluctance or difficulty to move forward with successful, well-tested ideas that come out of a sprint, it's there's usually one of two things going on. Either the team the team makeup wasn't quite right. Um, I remember a sprint that we did. Um, uh, the story is in the book with a with a fake company name um, because we we didn't want to throw our friends under the bus. Sure. But um, I remember a sprint that we did early on where it was just it was we were firing on all cylinders. It was an awesome sprint. The the ideas were great. The test was great. Everybody was like literally high fiving at the end of the week. Um, but we we didn't include the the decision maker. Mm. We didn't include the decider. That person was on vacation that week, and the team said it'll be fine. You know, we I've got a one on one with him every week. I'll tell him what we did. It's going to be great. Um, but it wasn't great yeah. <laughs> when uh, when when you know sort of moved out of that that sprint process. Um, that decision maker wasn't bought in. They weren't. Um, that wasn't their vision. That wasn't the direction that they were heading. Yeah. And getting sort of a, a 15 minute or 30 minute recap about the sprint just wasn't enough. Yeah. So, so, so team makeup. So not having the right people in the room yeah. is one of the big causes. And the other cause is just not having the sort of organizational, um, awareness or savvy to, to know that the, know that there's capacity to execute on things, um, you know, I think a, a lot of times, particularly when there's a, a a separate innovation team or separate leadership who's supposed to focus on innovation, um, they are empowered to generate ideas yeah. and and hopefully in, in some cases to validate those ideas. Um, and that's certainly you know one of the things that the sprint process is really great for. Mm-hmm. But if the organization that's going to execute on those ideas doesn't have bandwidth, they don't have capacity. They're not. They don't have the time to move those things forward. They're not going to happen. Um, you know, I think that we we all like to believe that um, a, a brilliant idea is going to change minds. Yeah. That we're going to show somebody something, and they're going to say, "Wow, that's so that's so amazing. That's so compelling." That I'm going to I'm going to stop what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to stop what what my team is doing, and uh, and have them work on this thing. But that rarely happens. You know, there's so much inertia. Mm. Um, when it comes to large organizations that I, I do think that, um, you know, starting to, to do sprints, starting to do other activities, processes where the focus is on generating and validating ideas without the awareness or valid or sort of um, confirmation that the organization's ready to execute on those is going to be a recipe for frustration, Got it. unfortunately. Okay. Um, Shifting gears just a little bit, you mentioned kind of at the, at the at the beginning that you you took a lot of these you know concepts and you know, identified sort of parallels that that um, you were able to sort of apply at a personal level. And now it sounds like the focus of kind of what you uh, spend a lot of your time on is thinking about and writing about and talking about and facilitating workshops on how to um, help people um, sort of manage their lives a little bit better using some of these these premises. Um, Talk a little bit about that. Like at the high level, like if you had sort of a, a not an elevator pitch, but but the core <laughs> kind of the core kind of principles behind this this applying this framework at a personal level, what would those sort of be? Sure. So the 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 big idea is that so many of the decisions we make about how we spend our time are are done by default. They're not things that we are uh, intentionally and actively deciding. They're just things that we do, things that we react to. Um, and I think if you if you 
kind of think back through a, a typical day, um, you know, there's probably early in the morning, there's probably a point where you grab your phone and you check email and maybe you check Twitter and yeah. maybe, you know, depending on what, what, you know, services you like, yeah. maybe you look at the news mm -hmm. and each of those things kind of send you down a reactive path. Yeah. Um, and then you've got things you do at work, you know, there's, there's meetings you go to, there's recurring meetings, there's certain things that happen in certain ways just because that's the way they are. Yeah. Um, people interrupt you either via chat or in person and you react to those things. Um, and, you know, and then, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you kind of feel frustrated that you didn't have time for the things that you really wanted to focus on at work. Mm -hmm. And as a result of all this busyness of all the sort of the, the stimulation and the, and the reaction, you're kind of wiped out and you're drained and you don't have energy to focus on the stuff that you care about outside of work. So a lot of people turn to entertainment from the same kinds of things that burned them out during the day, you know, spending more time on devices, yeah. um, you know, infinite sources of, of entertainment and content. And so um, the, the, the work that I'm doing now, and, and, and just to be clear, like the sprint stuff is, is not separate from, from this stuff. It's all the same yeah. because the design sprint process is a way of helping people um, be intentional about their time with their team at work mm -hmm. in a very specific context. But more broadly, this work, I, I, I you know, the, the umbrella is make time. That's kind of what I call this, this approach or this framework. And I wrote a book uh, with Jake Knapp. We also wrote the sprint book together. We wrote a book called Make Time mm -hmm. about this stuff. And the basic idea is to reset the defaults around what you want to be spending time on yeah. so that you're being proactive with your time instead of reactive. Yeah. Um, and, and like you said, a lot of those lessons came from what we saw working really well in design sprints. So the idea of having one major focus for each day mm -hmm. um, in, in make time, we call that a highlight. So it's, it, it's actually one of the easiest and, and sort of most powerful changes that people can can make um, is just thinking about each day, like what's the one thing that is really important to me that I want to make time for? It doesn't have to be some massive project. It doesn't have to be some life-changing thing. Yeah. But but I, it's it's amazing how rarely, you know, left to our own devices, it's amazing how rarely we we think about the, the you know, even just one thing that we want to make time yeah. for. Um, seeing teams work together face-to-face uh, -face without devices <laughs> has been really illuminating yeah, in the design sprints. And so reconfiguring your devices to be um, not just to like have them interrupt you less, but to, but to remove the temptation of, of apps like social media mm. and the news and the stock market and even email um, can, can sort of give you your mind back. Yeah. Um, the, the other lessons that we saw are the sort of the, the importance of energy that comes from taking care of yourself. Mm. As you, you might imagine by the, the name Design Sprint, um, when we started doing it, it was fairly fast-paced. Yeah. It was fairly intense. Yeah. We, would, we would spend long hours. Mm. And we, we saw that by dialing that back and building in time for breaks and for a proper lunch and, and ending at five instead of going as long as we felt like yeah. it, um, we actually got more done and people felt much better about what we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the final lesson is, is the power of, of experimentation. So you know, I, I encourage people to, to look at each of their days as sort of a fresh experiment. Uh, take it one day at a time and say, you know, yesterday I felt 
pretty worn out, pretty you know, distracted, pretty busy. <clears throat> what are some changes I can make tomorrow? Um, and, and again, not get wrapped up in making these huge, sweeping, life-changing decisions yeah. overnight, yeah. but but try to just m- make each day a little bit better, a little bit more intentional than the last. I like the the language of experiment because it it at uh you know my my wife and I are both pretty high achievement oriented type of folks. And one of the downsides I think to that is, um, when, you know, you start to do things like reflecting on your previous day or whatever, um, it's really easy to, to fall into a temptation of, um, or to like feelings of sort of guilt, like, Oh, I should have done, I should have done X or why can't I be better at Y or whatever it is. And, um, it seems like the idea of an experiment kind of gives you almost, uh, like, like grace in a way to like fail and to screw up and to kind of treat that as like, it's a, it's a, it's an opportunity <laughs> yeah. to learn and be a little bit better and to be a little bit more, be more gentle with yourself, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. One of the reasons that Jake and I wrote make time is that we, as you know, talking about all this process optimization and all these things, like yeah. you probably get the impression that we're, we're big nerds, you know, <laughs> we, we like thinking about this stuff. Sure. And so we read articles and books and we read research about, about, you know, behavioral psychology and about teamwork and group dynamics and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, most people don't read that stuff. And, and there are plenty of books out there about, you know, productivity and about time management, but, but they're very intense um, and they're very um, kind of all or nothing. Yeah. And so we wanted to write a book that was, that was forgiving and was flexible yeah. and gave people permission to, um, to think of their time as something that they can experiment mm-hmm. with. That's really cool. Yeah. We um, we're, we're both uh, GTD, you know, people. Yeah. And um, it was a conversation that we had probably, I don't know, three months ago, I guess, where, you know, I, I, it was one of those things where you can get exhausted by all of this sort of hyper optimization. And it was, the, the question was, what do you do when you've got all of your systems in place and you have all of your next actions catalog and all that kind of stuff. And you look at it and you're like, I don't want to do any of this, <laughs> you know, like you've optimized yeah. what you can optimize. Um, and sometimes maybe the answer is just to say that's a, to, to, to have permission to be like, that's okay. Like you don't have to, you don't have to, uh, to be constantly moving one of these things forward. Um, right. Anyway, it's interesting. It's, it's it's cool that you guys are are, are giving people uh, a gentler kind of on ramp to, um, you know, to, to, to optimizing without having you know the all of the kind of crushing expectations that maybe come with it. Um, at a te- what about it like at a team level? Because it seems like it's it's it could come full circle, right? Where you've got you, you know you take a lot of these learnings from from the sprint process. You realize that there are some common threads there that could be applied personally. It seems like similarly, you could then say, okay, well, what if every team member inside my company did this as a sort of a matter of course? Um, yeah. Have you, have you seen that? Have you been invited, you know, helping organizations kind of at that level? Um, or, you know, if not, are there, are there, you know, suggestions for how folks might be able to say, Hey, that, you know, that sounds good. Like having everybody making sure that they're moving something forward each day, working at a sustainable mm-hmm. pace, managing their energy, minimizing distractions, et cetera, et cetera. seems like a really good idea. Any suggestions for how an organization might be able to help or a manager might be able to help their team, you know, anything along those lines? Yeah. I think it's really interesting actually, because, um, adopting these ideas, adopting these philosophies can happen either sort of from the bottom up or from the top down. So there are a set of things that, that 
teams can decide to do amongst themselves. But then there are also things that leadership can do if they decide to make it a priority that then cascade down. You know, those benefits sort of cascade down and have a positive effect on on everybody in the organization. So um, one of my favorite tactics for you know, kind of that bottom-up approach is um, for a team to make a decision amongst themselves about um, how they want to structure their time each week. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I call it block as a team, you know, block your calendar as a team. And it can, it can start very, very small. It can be something as small as uh, saying that we don't have any meetings before 10. Mm-hmm. We don't have any meetings before 11 or something like that. Or having a certain day of the week that's designated for certain kinds of activities. And you can start, you know, three people can can decide that they want to do that together. They don't need permission. You know, they might have to flex a little bit, you know, depending on on what kind of meetings they have or what kind of uh, work they need to do. But that's something that anybody, any team can decide to do and can have a huge impact. Um, A similar one is what I call uh, a contact contract. (laughs) So this is basically an agreement between team members about how you're going to communicate and what the expectations are for those communications. So you might say um, email is our primary mode of communication and we don't expect a response from each other within 24 hours. If you need a response more quickly, then then we'll use Slack for that. Mm And um, uh, Slack, you know, we we decide that w- we want to use it for quicker response things, but we also know that it can it can suck up all of our attention if we let it. So we're going to have you know an expectation of of three hour response times mm-hmm. for messages to sl- in Slack. Um, and if you really truly need to reach me right away, you can text me or you can call me, um, and I will honor that as being you know an urgent time sensitive thing that you that you'd made a decision about so so that's another thing that a team can decide to do um some of the 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 top down stuff um that that i've seen work uh is um when leaders are much more thoughtful about when they ask for updates from their team this is one of the most disruptive things that leaders can do is hey what's going on with that project (laughs) or hey can you give me a quick update on on how this initiative is going um, and that seems like a small thing to that leader, and it is a small thing, mm-hmm. but it can potentially be a huge thing yeah. to the person who needs to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the tactics that I recommend is is to stop asking for updates and instead of you know kind of asking for status, ask for summaries. So say, hey, I know you're working on XYZ right now. Um, in two weeks, you know, when, when you reach this milestone, I'd like you to write me a summary of what happened, what you did, and what you learned, and how it went, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, because then that becomes something that the team can plan for. They can anticipate. And not only that, but they can actually structure the project around generating the the data or the the, the lessons that need to be in that summary. Yeah. So it, it can kind of – it can not only uh, improve the way that people are spending their time, but it can make – the work itself more productive and better if they know that that expectation of a summary is coming at the Got end. Got it. Yeah, that's really that's really cool. Um, I would imagine that that's part of the you know, the the one you know the 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 rise of the one on one as a uh, you know sort of as a much yeah you see that a lot more commonly I think than maybe you did five years ago. Um, I would imagine that that has similar similar sort of genesis behind it in terms of now I'm not having to kind of do a fire alarm constantly and my team is able to know you know on yeah. Friday or whatever. You know, I'm going to be expecting, 
Yeah, you know, totally. So it's really cool. Um, yeah. Super, super fascinating. For folks that want to learn more, I guess, either about um, either about you know the, the design sprint methodology itself or um, the work that you're kind of doing these days on, on the kind of with, on the more personal kind of make time level, how can folks kind of learn more about you and your work? Sure. The uh, official website for the design sprint process is thesprintbook.com. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of information there. There's um, one of my favorite things there is uh, um, a, a, a collection of stories called Sprint Stories. And these are, I think we, we have well over 100 stories now that have been written up and submitted to us from everything from the smallest startups to some of the largest organizations in the world, not just companies, but nonprofits, governments from literally every not literally, almost every continent, virtually every wow. continent. Um, and, and that's all part of the sprintbook.com. Um, that's also a place where you can find, uh, beyond just the book, you can find ways to learn more about the sprint process yep. to sort of get get more advanced training. Um, there's a an online masterclass that Jake Knapp has produced um, with a design firm in Berlin. Um, you can find that there. And then Jake and I both teach in-person one day design sprint workshops, and you can find those on the site cool. too. Um, the website for Make Time is maketime.blog. Okay. And so there's actually an article there with some of these ideas about um, how to apply those philosophies at work. The article is just called Making Time at Work. Okay. So um, that's something people can check out. And then, uh, and then I'm probably most active on Twitter. So okay. my username is J A Z E R Jazzer. If people want to follow me, um, I don't have Twitter on my phone, so I'm not going <laughs> to reply. I'm not going to see your your tweet or reply right away, yeah. but I will see it. I, I've got every day. I spend a small amount of time on that's Twitter awesome. on the computer. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of one of my late afternoon activities. Got it. So very cool. So yeah, that's a good way to to keep it. Awesome. Touch. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. I think this is going to be one of the more uh, just uh, actionable, kind of valuable ones that we've done up to this point. So really, really appreciate you taking the time. Very cool. Thanks so much for having me. My guest today was John Zaratsky. For more information on how you can help your company bring disruptive new products to the world, visit www.digintent.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love a review on iTunes or whatever platform you choose. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.